your Bibles with you, and I hope you do find your way to Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to share with you a message that I've titled, as you see on the screen here, Confessing Christ with No Costumes. Confessing Christ with No Costumes. I heard a story about a drama student who was working his way through college. He couldn't find an acting job, but he still wanted to meet the finances of the position, and so he actually got a job at the zoo, the local zoo where he was working, just working in the ticket office for the zoo. Well, this was a zoo that really prided itself on its great variety of animals, and they were known far and wide because of their regular availability of these animals. Well, it so happened that after hours, one day not long after this drama student had begun working at the zoo, that the gorilla died. And so... The manager of the zoo, wanting to kind of keep his reputation of his organization up, he knew about this drama student, so he went and he purchased a really lifelike gorilla suit, and he asked this drama student if he would be willing to stand in as the gorilla while they sought to locate another gorilla to fill in in the long term. So the drama student agreed. He thought, hey, this would give me a chance to try something drama-related, and And he suited up in the gorilla suit, and he continued day in, day out with the zoo, open, acting like a gorilla to the best of his ability. Well, as a few days went by, he got a little bit overconfident in his abilities, and he thought, you know, I'm going to try to run like the gorillas run, using my hands and my feet. And so as he tried to do that, he stumbled, and he rolled, and he fell into the lion's enclosure. Well, as the lion prowled near, this poor drama student thought, this is the end of me. And so he started to cry out in despair, help, help, when all of a sudden the lion spoke to him and said, hey man, if you keep this up, you're going to get both of us fired. (laughs) Sometimes going to church can feel a little bit like that sort of encounter because there are times when any given number of us know that there are areas of our lives that are not in line with God's will and yet we're tempted to hide behind the costume of a good smile and hands lifted in worship and voices lifted in song as we go through the outward motions of what we believe a Christian ought to do. And we may at times start to wonder if everyone is just wearing a costume to hide who they really are on the inside the same way that we are. Well, when we come to Luke chapter 12, Jesus has a sermon that his followers need to hear. Luke has just described a contentious encounter between Jesus and this Pharisee who had invited him over to lunch along with a few other lunch companions. And Jesus did not have nice things to say to these individuals because they were living a fraudulent life. They were living as though they were wearing a costume of following God. They were dirty on the inside, but they kept the outside of their lives clean. Now, the Pharisees were these uber-religious rule keepers who were so proud of their ability to keep the rules that they themselves had interpreted And so this group would so often look to others around and they would speak to them with words of condemnation because they were not living up to the standards that they themselves set. 
They looked at others and said, you're not living as holy as I am. Therefore, you are not in a right standing with God. There was pride all on the inside of these Pharisees as they lived with their own expectations and their own performance. And so Jesus called out these individuals because he knew what was on the inside of them. He could see beyond the costume that was on the outside. In fact, he pronounced six woes on these individuals. We looked at those over the last couple of weeks as Jesus was essentially giving them six warnings of their impending condemnation if they didn't start honoring God on the inside the way they pretended to honor him through the costume on the outside. And after that encounter, Luke describes in the final two verses of Luke chapter 11 that when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. Well, then as we come into chapter 12, immediately after this encounter, we find that Jesus begins to teach his disciples And when he begins to teach his disciples, he does so with these words. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That word translated hypocrisy from its original Greek form literally refers to the act of delivering a speech with interpretive gestures and imitation. That word was used in the realm of Greek theater in reference to actors who would put on a mask and play a part on a stage. Those practicing hypocrisy in Jesus' day, literally, they wore a mask or they hid behind a costume as they sought to convince the audience that there was something within that was not truthful. They were trying to convince individuals that they were a character that they truly were not. That's essentially what the Pharisees were doing. Only they were doing it in the public square and not in the theater. They were trying to convince the watching world around them that they were holy when in fact they were far from it. Because beyond the costume of their diligent attempts to obey the law of God was this heart which was prideful and selfish and refusing to honor God or to love their neighbors as themselves which God commands us to do. And hypocrisy was a danger that was so real in the lives of these Pharisees. And hypocrisy was a real danger to the early church. And hypocrisy continues to be a great danger to the body of Christ in our day. Jesus described it as a leaven, which when placed in a lump of dough, works its way throughout the whole dough over just a matter of time. And I just want to say, if you are content to hide behind the costume of false obedience to God, you had better expect that it will taint you. And hypocrisy will not only taint you, it will also taint your kids, your family, your friends, your workplace, and especially your church. Hypocrisy will Xerox fake followers of God But there's hope for this struggle, my friends. And you may be the sort of individual or know the sort of individual who says, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I would say, you know, that may be true. And if if that's your opinion, then I'd say come and join the rest of us. Because it's not good to be a hypocrite 
But when you're prone to hypocrisy, as I think all of us are, and you come together as a body of Christ and you study the Word of God, we find a Savior who beckons us out of our hypocrisy. Jesus calls for us to lay aside our costumes and live with an authentic faith in Him. And when we gather together as the assembled body, we are encouraging one another to do this very thing. We don't come to celebrate our hypocrisy. We come to celebrate the one who draws us out of that through authentic life. And so Jesus calls us to lay aside our costumes. He calls for us to live with an authentic faith in him. And we must remember that the church is not a museum for saints. We have not installed glass cabinets where all of you can stand and show, look at how good I am. The body of Christ is a hospital for sinners. We come here to find healing from the only true source of eternal life for what ails us. And so we come with our hypocrisies, we come with our struggles, we come with our trials, and we come to the one who has all power over all of these things, seeking his will for our lives. And I say a hypocrite who comes for treatment is better than a hypocrite who suffers alone, amen? So as we come to the Word of God today, I just ask that you be willing to go through a little time of triage as we step into the hospital of the church here today. Let yourself be vulnerable as each of us considers the question, am I confessing Christ with no costumes? Look with me now at Luke chapter 12 as we read God's Word, verses 1 through 12. Stand with me, if you will, as we honor the reading of God's Word. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So the question 
that we want to consider here on this day is, are you confessing Christ with no costumes? Can you truthfully say these four statements? I'm going to give us kind of a diagnostic list of statements. Can you truthfully say these statements? And this will help us to each one determine in our own lives whether or not we're confessing Christ with no costumes. Here's the first statement. Can you truthfully say this? There is nothing I'm hiding from God. There is nothing I'm hiding from God. Luke begins with the circumstances here that prompt Jesus' words to his disciples. And those we find in verse 1. So in addition to that confrontation we've just talked about between the Pharisee and the lawyer who were gathered around the table at lunch, then we find that in verse 1, so many thousands of people had gathered together, Luke says, that they were stepping on one another. Now, nobody likes to be stepped on, right? Stepping on others isn't a good thing. That's not a good virtue. But when, when we think about that, so these people are doing kind of a tough thing, a thing you don't want to experience yourself, but, but why are these people gathered together? They're gathered together because they obviously want to be close to Jesus. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to see him work miracles. And surely some of them were there for pure motives, while others of them were there for malicious motives but even in the fact that some of them were willing to step on others we see yet another form of hypocrisy at work these individuals are pretending to be interested in what God is saying through Christ and what God is doing through Christ but they don't care who they have to step on in order to get a better view or to earn a better position their very deeds of stepping over others are contradictory to what God is doing in this moment in their nation through Christ. And so desiring to be close to God is good, but all of us should know, all of us should be aware that stepping all over one another to get there, to get to our closeness to God is not a good thing. Stepping on one another says, my position and my will are more important than your welfare. And so we all must be careful that we don't crush others in our attempt to be a part of a church that just suits our own desires. And under these circumstances, Jesus addresses his disciples primarily, saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he gives these reasons why his followers should be wary of those who wear costumes without truly caring for Christ for he says in verse 2 and 3 there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known accordingly what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops now if you're living behind a costume of following Christ then these should be scary words for you Because if you think you're going to be able to keep on hiding who you really are from God and from everyone else, my friends, you should know you are sorely mistaken because Jesus makes it clear that that's not going to happen. And let me just say here, hypocrisy is a twofold lie. It's a lie to everyone else that you aren't who you really are, but it's also a lie to yourself that says God doesn't know who I am And that he's going to continue to allow me to live out this farce forever. Jesus says, there is nothing uncovered. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. And friend, if you think that you're hiding something from God, this is a call for you to come clean. 
This is a call for you to confess your sin, to remove the costume, because there's nothing hidden that will not be made known. That's what Jesus says here in the latter half of verse 2. And so whatever you said in the dark, Jesus says, will be heard in the light. And that just causes us to pause for a moment and say, well, well, why would we say things in the dark? Like, like, why would we go out of our way to find a dark place to say certain things? Well, you might speak in the dark because you don't want someone else to know that it's you who's speaking. And many times, that's a coward's approach to speaking. Let me give you a practical example of this. Many a church and many a Christian have grown weary of receiving anonymous letters. And I just, wanna, I just want you to know, an anonymous letter written in the darkness of anonymity can be a great dagger of Satan to a fellow Christian. At the marriage retreat that Amy and I attended just a few weeks back, uh, we gathered around other pastors and their wives late one evening just to pray over one another before we retired for the evening. And as one couple came forward, a pastor and his wife, they requested prayer And as they requested prayer, we learned that this brother, who was a pastor, had received a stinging, anonymous letter from someone in his flock claiming that he was not preaching the gospel. Now, his wife said that he had been preaching some of his best and some of his most Christ-exalting messages yet. But now, this poor brother was broken. He was questioning his calling. Every member of his flock he encountered, he was wondering, could this be the person who hates what I am doing? And so he wept bitter tears at the malicious hands of an unknown assailant. And I, too, have received anonymous letters in the past. But let me tell you this. If you don't take the courage to own your words, then I'm probably not going to take the care to take them to heart. And you may think you're going to remain anonymous, but what is said in the dark will be heard in the light, Jesus says. And nothing that you hide will not be made known. So hear me on this, my friends. There is no late night rendezvous or no darkness shrouding hotel room where sweet nothings are spoken in the dark as destructively as a bulldozer plowing down a home that will not be proclaimed from the rooftop. There are no conversations whispered in forming ungodly allegiances against the work of the church or the integrity of a co-worker or the good name of a business competitor that will not be shouted from the housetops. If you are hiding your gossip and your slander of others or your forbidden relationships or your habits that you know God does not desire behind a costume of holiness, it will all come crashing down. And so I say to you, submit your words in the light and your words in the darkness to the authority of Jesus. Do all things consistently, honoring him, whether you go into the inner room or whether you are found out in the public square. Don't flatter on the outside, but speak ill on the inside. Be consistent in your Christ-like character and ditch the costumes. And... So I ask you, are you confessing Christ with no costumes? Can you truthfully say there's nothing I'm hiding from God? That's the first diagnostic statement. Here's the second. Can you truthfully say 
There's no man I'm fearing over God. When I first started my preparations for this message, I was thinking of calling this message fearless faith because there's an element in which Jesus juxtaposes a couple of elements of fear here. And that's actually the title that you see in your bulletin. But the more I've thought about verses 4 through 7, the more I've decided that it's not a fearless faith that we need. It's a faith that's afraid of the right person. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 4, Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. So Jesus begins by telling us here not to be afraid. And who is it that we're not to be afraid of? It's those who kill the body. Now, that might seem a little bit odd to us at first, right? It's Jesus saying to us that if someone comes out of the woods at your house wearing a screen mask and carrying a butcher knife that you shouldn't run, no, that's probably not what he's after here. No, and actually, I'm going to say if that's me, if that guy's coming out of my woods, you're going to see a trail of dust behind me as I go and find somewhere to be secure. But Jesus is speaking to his friends. He's speaking to those who follow him. And he's drawing a contrast with the one in verse 5 that he then says, it is right to fear. He's speaking to those who confess him. And because they confess him, he knows that they will very soon, and as a matter of fact, they are already facing persecution. So the temptation for them, the temptation that they are facing in that moment is that they would run so that they would not be murdered for no reason. The temptation is that they would refuse, refuse to preach the gospel. They would refuse and hide away, keeping this good news that Jesus had come to give them to themselves because following him meant putting their very lives on the line. And Jesus says, you know, compared to what God offers you, Losing your life here and now is nothing. He offers us so much more than a few more years of extended life in health and safety. And sure, there are individuals who will oppose you if you confess Christ. But you can't let that scare you out of living for Christ. Even if they oppose you to the greatest extent of their ability, even if they take your life from you because you follow Jesus, they can't take away what you have available in him. They can't touch the eternal life that he offers to you. And so you should know that following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be sunlight and roses ahead for you on the path of life. Jesus gives no false expectations of that here. No, you may face rejection. You may even lose your life if you follow him and yield your life in obedience to him and drop the costume that says, I'm doing it all. But hear me on this. He's worthy of it. He is worthy of any rejection we could face. He is worthy of me being seen as the weird one who doesn't join the party with the rest of the crowd. He is worthy of my being mocked and being scorned and my being excluded by those who think that I am out of touch. He is worthy of my very life if the circumstances should demand it. Not only is he worthy, knowing him and confessing him is the only way that you'll have certainty about the eternity that lies ahead for you. And so Jesus says in verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. 
Fear the one whom after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And so, friends, I say this to you. A right-seated faith cannot have its prize torn away. Even if those who oppose Christ should take our very, very lives, they can't take our prize. There is an eternal prize that is so much greater than what we enjoy here temporarily. But eternal separation and suffering apart from God would be far worse than the temporary persecutions and even physical death that we might find if we hid behind the costume of a false faith. And so I say, if you haven't yielded your life to Jesus, if you're still living behind the costume of your own self-righteousness, then these words ought to be terrifying to you. Do you really realize that God has authority over you, the one who made you, and, and he has the ability to cast you into hell? Do, do you realize that he, as your creator, the one who you have denied, would be perfectly just in throwing you, in casting you into hell? If you haven't yielded to your life to Jesus, then you ought to be afraid, Jesus shows us here. My friend, if you've been trusting in something other than his grace, then you've been missing this hope that is eternal, and you are running a very dangerous risk. So have you been saved by trusting in his grace for you? You may say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, if, if you have entrusted your life and your future to Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you have no need to worry. But if I wasn't sure about these things, I want to tell you, I wouldn't want to spend my life with a constant worry. I would want to throw myself on his mercy and his grace here and now. I'd want to shed that costume. I'd want to fall into his grace here and now. Because there's no better time than the present time to find that the one who can throw us into hell is also the one who extends to us his mercy through the grace of the gospel. Jesus came as God in the flesh to bear the hellish wrath that we deserve. And he stands ready to forgive those who cry out to him to be saved. And so I say, have you, my friend, called out to Jesus to be saved? And take heart in this. Take heart, my friends. I mean, it's a pretty tough thing to stand here and proclaim the truth, the reality that we serve a righteous God and that all of our unholiness against him deserves judgment, that he can cast us into hell, but we can take comfort in this. Take heart. The one who we ought to fear does not forget us. Jesus compares the state of every human being with the state of what might appear to be practically worthless birds in verse 6. He talks about sparrows, which were sold in this day in bunches of five for only two cents. That's four-tenths of a penny per bird. That seems like a pretty worthless animal to us, does it not? But what does Jesus say in the latter half of that verse? He says, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. That which may seem worthless to us does not escape his notice. And beyond that, Jesus says in verse 7, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So he says, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. 
So here, right after Jesus has told us to fear the one who can throw us into hell, he follows up with a command, do not fear when it comes to whether or not God cares for us. Why? Because God knows the hairs on our heads. Now, for some of us, that's a little bit easier of a goal for God to attain than for others of us because not all of us share the same number of hairs that we started out with. I understand that. But still, that's a very intricate detail of who you are. And God knows that about you. He knows every intricate detail about you. He is intricately interested in you, my friend. You could think of it this way. The God of heaven, the God who made and the God who maintains all that there is, the God who holds all power and all wisdom and all authority, this very same God can't keep his eyes off of you. He is intricately interested in you. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel insignificant. You ever feel insignificant? Well, if you ever feel like you're just one of those fish who's swimming in this grand ocean of God's creation, I would say that, my friends, all of our fears of insignificance should be conquered by this one statement. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And God knows what you need. In fact, he lends his strength to meet your needs. He knows what you need as you hide and you whisper about these things in your inner room. He knows the need that you shy away from in the darkness to hide. But he still loves you. He still calls for you to come to him. He still wants you to be redeemed. He has the power over that need. He still sent his son to die for that need. And so what do we make of this command to fear the one who can throw us into hell along with the command not to fear because God is intricately aware of us and our needs? Well, I would summarize it this way. A right-seated fear causes us to lean on God's grace, but not to abuse his grace. Let me say that again. A right-seated fear causes us to lean on God's grace, but not to abuse his grace. When we have a right-seated fear, we come to realize how wretched we are on our own, how prone we are to cover up with the costumes of feigned righteousness. And this ought to drive us to yield ourselves to the perfect love that casts out fear. And in response to that love, we live in obedience. We do not abuse grace, but we drop the masks and we seek God's help to live a response of love through the grace that he freely gives to us. And so I say, are you confessing Christ with no costumes? Can you truthfully say there's no man that I'm fearing over God? That's the second diagnostic statement. Here's the third. Can you truthfully say there's no place where I am denying God? There's no place where I am denying God. For those of you who are parents, I don't know about your kids, but, but my kids are a bit like my parents' youngest son named Jeremy because my kids have some quirks about them, okay? Sometimes they fuss and fight when we go out in public, Sometimes they can be just as hard-headed as their dad. Sometimes they get downright goofy. We went out to dinner the other night, and I was picking with them about how they say the words like and uh so often as they're saying something, right? 
You know, they're like, uh, you know, they're telling the story like, uh, you know, this guy went to like uh, the store and so on and so forth. And I noticed that in them. As a matter of fact, I didn't even tell them I noticed it. I just was watching their conversation. They saw me counting up on my fingers how many times they were saying like and uh. And so we began this, com- this competition between them to see who could go the longest without saying the words like or uh, Okay. And I set a timer on my phone, and we, and we started that timer up, and it took about 10 tries before any of my children could go through and have a minute of conversation without saying the words like or uh. And so we had that contest. Meanwhile, they're cackling. They're carrying on. We probably had every eye in the place on us. And then last night at dinner, our youngest son wasn't eating he was too busy playing with his toy story toys due to the overflowing excitement of a movie that has come out recently so I took those toys away from him and I put them on the refrigerator I said okay now you're not playing with your toys it's time to eat your meal well he ate for a few minutes before going over to my wife Amy and whispering to her I have an idea mommy I'll go get more toys (laughs) apparently that lesson had not yet gotten through to him and my kids are not perfect but you all know that but the one thing that they are while they may not be perfect they are mine I I will I will say that there is no situation that I could imagine when I'm going to take them out somewhere and leave them and say I don't know those children I own them because they are mine. I I say they are mine and I rejoice to have them as mine. They are God's gracious gifts to me as my children. And it's not going to happen that I'm just going to abandon them one day because they are my children. I love them, faults and all. And do you see what Jesus says there in verse 8? He says, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Can you imagine this scene? Just imagine Jesus. He's there. He's seated seated on the throne where he reigns as the rightful King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all of his subjects worship him, gathering around his throne, bowing before him for who he is. He has all wisdom and all power and all authority. He has no need of nothing. But when you stand before him one day soon, having confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there with the angels, he will confess you before them. He will proudly proclaim, that one is mine. That boy is mine. That girl is mine. Sure, he's got a few quirks. Sure, she's got some flaws. But this one is mine. And this one has my unconditional love. Can you imagine that scene? It shall one day soon be a reality for those of us who know Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Now the question remains, what if I don't confess him? What if I keep on living as though he's a good guy, a good teacher, or a good prophet, or a good example? 
What if I even do good works in his name and talk about what a good Lord he is, but I'm not willing to confess that I'm desperately lost in my own sin and that my only hope is in his saving work for me? Well, Jesus says that in that state, he who denies me before men will be not denied before the angels of God. And friend, you should know you need to be saved. Jesus gives a foretaste for those who on that coming day of judgment may have thought that he was good or may have done good things in his name but who never called upon him as Savior. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. How could Jesus not know us on that day? Could it be because we hid away in the darkness of the inner room, living as hypocrites, pretending to be sinless and in good standing with God, when in fact we were whispering sweet nothings of our own pride, of self-reliance beneath a costume of false Christianity? And so I say, are you confessing Jesus? Or are there some places, some context where you might deny him? You may say, oh, I'd never speak a word to deny my Jesus. But let me ask you this. Do you ever deny him by your silence? Because it's possible to deny Jesus by failing to witness for him or by trying to remain unnoticed in your faith. It's also possible to deny Jesus with your actions. When we live like the rest of the world lives with no standards and no godly virtues and no reigning Lord, we deny him. And so I ask you, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence that others around you could collect to convict you? Do people know by what you say and how you live that you bound yourself eternally to Christ? Would there, or would there be enough counter evidence that a jury could point to in order to say, you know, this one doesn't really appear to be a follower of Jesus? You see, if we fear God and we serve him, even when our world reacts negatively, we have a steady assurance that Christ is the Lord over our lives and we have a glad reception awaiting us when we encounter eternity. So the diagnostic question there, are you confessing Christ with no costumes? Can you truthfully say there is no place where I am denying God? That's the third diagnostic statement. Here's the final one. Can you truthfully say there is no work that I am refusing God? There is no work that I am refusing God. In verse 10, Jesus says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So there's a hope and there's a warning that are wrapped up together in this verse. The hope is this. If you've denied Christ before, if you've mocked Christians and you've said that they follow empty promises, if you've waved your finger in the face of God and said Jesus isn't who he said he was, even though the evidence is overwhelming that he is who he said he was, if you've done those things, my friends, there is still 
a hope for you. Because everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is Jesus, everyone who speaks a word against Him has an opportunity for forgiveness. Not long after this event, they would be hoisting Jesus up on a cross to face a torturous death. But as they lifted Him up, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even as they cried out, crucify Him crucify him even as they called him one who was a liar and a thief Jesus forgave them and Jesus stands ready to forgive you as well I don't care how many times you've rejected him in the past there is a hope for you if you will not refuse this invitation to throw down the costume to turn from your sins to give your life and to receive his salvation make him king over your eternity there's still hope If you're still breathing, there's still hope. You're not too far gone. Not yet, at least. But there is an unpardonable sin. There is a sin that will not be forgiven. And Jesus says that's the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy is the act of disrespecting God, defying God as you disrespect Him. And that can come through words of cursing. It can come through words of... Uh, or, or really actions of degrading things that you know are related to God. Or blasphemy could also be a matter of attributing some evil to God or denying some good that rightfully finds its source in Him. Some of you may recall that the event that kicked all of this tension with the Pharisees off in this latest episode began back in chapter 11 when Jesus cast this demon out of a man who had previously been mute. And in response to that miracle, the Pharisees who were standing there said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They accused Jesus and this spirit that was working within him of being of evil intent. He accused him of doing his work through an evil spirit. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in essence. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Mark reveals Jesus' words regarding blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Pharisees are tied together pretty strongly. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 3. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Then Mark writes that Jesus said this because the Pharisees were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, what does all of this have to do, this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, this idea of attributing to the Holy Spirit the evil works of Satan? What does all this have to do with us? Well, ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts us. That is his role in our salvation. When we talk about the divine economy of God, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts us and guides us into all truth. That's his role in God's work of salvation. If the Spirit comes to do his work of convicting you and leading you to Jesus and you refuse that work because you claim that he is an evil spirit, then you will not be led to the only possible eternal hope Apart from following the Holy Spirit's prompting of your heart to believe in Jesus, there will be no salvation for you. And our culture would suggest that there are many ways to get to God. 
But here's what the Bible says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. If this is true, and I have staked my life on the conviction that this is true, any spiritual system that has something other than Christ Jesus crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascending, and reigning as a hero is totally bankrupt. Any other system is void and worthless. If this is true, we will not refuse the work that he leads us into through his holy spirit and then in verses 11 and 12 jesus shows us just how confidently we can lean on his holy spirit's work in our times of trial as we seek to live for his name that's where jesus says when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So I say, do you ever fear that if you were to find an audience where you can represent Christ, you won't know what to say? Jesus is teaching us here, we don't have to be afraid in that moment. Don't let your fear of speech cause you to refuse the work that God compels you to do. Because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And if the Spirit leads us to say what needs to be said when persecution comes, then we don't need to be worried about the consequences. If I die, and it was God who led me to speak the words that bring my sentence, then I die in a just cause. If I lose my job, or if I lose my friend, or if I lose my relationship, or if I lose my life, it's okay because the Spirit is leading me exactly where I need to be when I am ready to confront persecution. And it's better to be in God's will in the midst of the fire than to be apart from him and enjoying the leisures of of no persecution. So the question we all must consider here today, are you confessing Christ with no costumes? Can you truthfully say there's nothing that I'm hiding from God? There's no man that I'm fearing over God. There's no place where I am denying God. God and there's no work that I'm refusing God if you can answer those questions in the affirmative then you can rejoice to know the costumes are gone but if you're like so many of us and you needed to come into this day for a checkup and you you needed to be triage you needed to have God root around in your heart and find where the costume needs to be dropped and friends I want to let you know His grace remains for you. His love is richly upon you. He still intimately desires to be your Lord and your Savior. And our God has ample forgiveness to the one who will turn away from his sins, turn away from her sins, come to him, and rejoice in his bountiful provision. Because, see, you see, we can't live a perfect life, but one came who could. And his name is Jesus. And he came living the sinless life that we could not live. And he died in our place as a substitute for the wrath we deserve. 
But beyond that, even, even as they placed him in a grave, death could not hold him because God had life in store for you. And as Jesus was raised from the dead, he confirmed all the things that we've talked about here today in terms of God's will for you. And his resurrection is a promise that all those who place their faith in him might have eternal lives themselves. And so I invite you, trust in Jesus. Call out to him, be my savior. Lord, I just, just say, Lord, I call upon you to save me. I entrust my life to you as Lord. And I guarantee you this, he will save you. This is what he desires to do. This is his heart for you. So rejoice in what God has granted to us. But don't keep the costumes home. Don't go through living a life as a fraud. Come to his amazing grace and find hope eternal. Would you bow with me? Father, your word is so rich. It calls us out in so many areas of our lives. Lord, I know that there are probably some here who have truly entrusted their lives to you, who just needed a checkup here today, Lord. I know that there are some of us, and anytime we come to your word, this ought to be our expectation, oh Lord. There, there are some of us, and perhaps even all of us, Lord, who are gathered here on this day, and as we've opened your word, as we've seen your demands, as we've, as we've seen how hypocrisy can be such a danger for us and for our families and for our church and for our society because we've seen these things i just pray that you'd help us to respond in an appropriate manner lord help us to know of your readiness to forgive help us to know of your knowledge of our sin on the inside but help us god to to drop the costumes Help us to not live a fraudulent faith, but to truly come and to truly trust in the one who has truly borne all of our sorrows and been acquainted with all of our griefs and offers to us eternal life. We praise you for Jesus. And Father, if there is that one who is here, if there are many who are here, Lord, who gather and hear this message and think, I've been living behind a costume of something so much less than that. I've never given my heart to Christ. God, I pray by the power of your Spirit, you would do a work in them now that they would not refuse. I pray that you would beckon them to come to Christ. I pray that the, the Holy Comforter would work in this moment, in these lives, God, to draw those who are lost to yourself and that no one would refuse this work, oh Lord. But God, you know every heart. You know the hardness there within and you know that each of us has our own will. So God, I pray you draw and I pray that those who are here and listening would have the courage to respond. As we share now in a time of invitation, God, I just pray that you would draw to you every weary sinner who needs the hope of eternal life, knowing that you provide these things richly, freely, by grace, through faith. We rejoice in your provisions, praying in Jesus' name. Amen.